0: Primary Care Knowledge Boost, Health Inequalities in General Practice, Dr Laura Nielsen. Hello and welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we speak to Dr Laura Nielsen about health inequalities and about thriving whilst working in areas of deprivation. Um, Dr. Laura Nielsen works in AE and she's also the CEO of the not-for-profit organisation Hope Citadel and um, she also heads up a lot of projects working in areas of high social deprivation including focused care, the Shared Health Foundation and a training scheme for GPs called Greater Manchester Deprivation Training Programme.
1: Yeah quite a lot as well as being a working practitioner. <laughs> um, so we talked to her about how she got involved with all of this and about the projects and then a little bit about health inequalities in general, what they are and why they're important and what us clinicians who aren't involved in these types of schemes can do on a day-to-day basis about trying to help. Exactly, and we'll be back at the end for our learning points. We hope you enjoy.
0: So as always, um, we always start with introductions. So Laura, would you mind introducing yourself and just tell us a little bit about your current role?
2: Yeah, so I'm Laura Nielsen. I'm a mum, I've got three kids, I've got one mad dog, who's not very well trained and um, I currently work for Hope Citadel Healthcare, Focus Care and Shared Health and clinically I do paediatrics as my clinical work. Interesting and today
0: we're obviously hitting you up about health inequalities, that's kind of the main theme of this yeah. chat today and um, so we thought we would kick off by um, starting with something simple and asking kind of just what is it, what's the definition of health inequalities?
2: So there's lots of technical stuff around health inequalities and um, I'm not an academic doctor. <laughs> so, but for me, health inequalities is a justice issue, really. And it's essentially the difference between life expectancy or life experience, so mortality and morbidity for people who live in poor areas or rich areas. It's a gradient along the income spectrum. And it's broadly that if you live in a poorer area or if you have less income, you get a significantly duffer deal with life. It's a technical definition. Uh, So you get a duff deal with education, you get a duff deal with work opportunities, you often get a duff deal with services. And in healthcare, we know that people receive worse healthcare, both access and quality, often if they live in poorer areas, and if they have less income. And that then correlates through to um, life expectancy, chronic conditions, morbidity, like health burden, really. So yeah, so there's lots of technical definitions and the boffins argue about them. I'm not a boffin, but I know the general trend.
1: No, I thought that was a lovely description. Very easy to understand. And I think you prefaced it perfectly by saying it's an issue of justice, but can you talk a bit more about why it's so important to you and to all of us, really?
2: Yeah, so for me, I grew up in a really affluent area um, in St Albans. I went to a school where it was like wonderfully privileged and I wore like a blazer, like a deck chair, and I did sports that no one else has ever done in their life. And, you know, had that kind of privileged upbringing. And I'm I'm really grateful for it. You know, I did ballet dancing and flute playing and embroidery and lots of things that are really not very useful as an adult anyway. Um, and for me, I'd never really experienced poverty. I'd never experienced deprivation. And then I did a, a gap year essentially with an organisation. I came to Manchester for a church youth project and I lived in Harper Hay, which is a hard-pressed area in Manchester. And I suddenly realised that like the rules of life that I'd grown up with, which is if you work hard and you try hard, then life kind of pans out for you, just didn't really apply in Harper Hay. And I can only describe it as being totally disorientated for the first couple of years of living there, where all the norms I knew didn't exist. I think that's where my education really began. And I started to see what, I, what we now call health inequalities Um, real life impact there I couldn't articulate it I didn't know the words for it but I did see injustice and then I moved to Fitton Hill in Oldham and um, my husband and I I got married by then and we were living on this estate and there was no GP practice near the estate and the local one was just known to be not very good to say the least Um, and I saw my neighbour my one of my neighbours I lived in like a Coronation Street Terrace house and one of my neighbours was an alcoholic and she was lovely and one day she fell over and she'd obviously broken her wrist I was at medical school you could see she'd broken her wrist and I took her to A&E and she just got treated really badly because she was an alcoholic and she was smelly and um, she got sent that classic letter we'll send you to fracture clinic a letter will come in the post I don't know if the letter came I don't know if the letter didn't come but she never got her wrist fixed and it was like completely at a funny angle um, and my other neighbor was a couple called Betty and Ward. And Betty was a carer for Ward, who was an adult with like learning disabilities. And they muddled along together really well. And then one day, Betty had a stroke. And I was learning about like the nice guidance of treating strokes and preventing strokes at uni. And none of that happened to Betty. And it really hit me at like, what happens to Ward if Betty's not there anymore. Mm. And so when you look at health outcomes, mm. you see those two stories playing out but at massive scale all over our country, you see people who could have better healthcare not getting it. And you see people who should be treated with dignity not getting it. And the compounding of that um, just makes me quite angry. And so um, Hope City started out of that experience, really. I was living there and there wasn't a GP practice. And we did a local campaign to put one into the estate where I lived on. And um, I didn't really expect anything else. Like I wasn't very good as a community organizer because I'd only have organized in my holidays and then in between when it was term time I didn't do any organizing so it was a really sporadic campaign but somehow we managed to persuade the local NHS the PCT at the time to put a health center into Fitton Hill and having kind of galvanized local opinion and um, local services one day one NHS manager said you can think about running it as you so tenaciously irritating <laughs> <laughs> And, and I went, I will. And I hadn't thought about it till that point, but I remember getting into my car that was like covered in rust and just literally put my hands on the team and going, oh, shit, what have I done? Um, but somehow knowing that that was actually like quite an important part of my life and that was something that I needed to do next. And so Hope still started. And from there, we, we, we try and do general practice in a way that brings change in areas of deprivation. And um, I have a great privilege of working with an amazing team and you just see those two stories I told you of um, my two neighbours from 15 years ago are still happening and it's still real and it's still life and it's still happening at a massive scale and it can be made better or worse by our decisions as doctors and it can be made better or worse by the decisions our society makes and our politics makes, definitely. Hmm. That's why I'm passionate about it because unfortunately, 15 years on, it's no better. Um, and I went to the Marmot presentation, and um, when Marmot did his 10-year review, I was I was in London, I got to see the presentation in Parliament, and it was surreal for many reasons. It was surreal because it was like two days before lockdown, and, and it was probably one of the last live events that happened. But it was also surreal because this amazing academic man was presenting his brilliant genius academics that just said, it was still rubbish, and in fact, we have made it worse in 10 years. And that was pre-pandemic, pre-whatever, we're currently in the season of weird politics and it was worse then and I remember sitting in parliament or wherever it was hearing this presentation being like really angry and feeling a bit foolish that I'd spent 10 years in my life trying to change this but also really passionate about still wanting to try and find solutions Um, and so that's why it's important to me I think it's really core, really deep in me in a way that I know what other people think it's probably a bit bonkers but that's fine um, not at all oh my goodness it's so
1: inspirational I can't believe that's your journey that's yeah it's fascinating yeah and so early on like you say in medical school that you were setting up all of that project so that's incredible yeah.
0: when I reflect back to what I was doing in medical school I don't think I was anywhere near that that's yeah very impressive
2: I think and, and it's not um I've had a really unusual career and I have a really unusual career and um and it's not comparative, really, because lots of stuff that you guys have done, I've not done. So when I talk to people who've like done CCT and consultant training and they've done lots of other things, they've, they've done lots of other stuff along the way, which I've not done. And that's because our time is really is limited. So you can't do everything. So you can only do what you can do. And I think that's, that's a real key thing in medicine is not to feel guilty about what you don't do. But for me, this is what I do. This is my, this is my role. This is my job
1: yeah what you're passionate about yeah and would you mind talking about the inverse care law for us whilst we're introducing the topic so the
2: inverse care law um was um written by julian tudor hart in i think 1976 and um i learned about it actually when i did a business master's so i didn't learn about it through medicine which i think is really interesting and um it's basically that um the care delivered to people varies inversely depending on their need So if you need the care, you're less likely to get it. And the second half of the sentence, which is hardly ever quoted, is that this is more um, profound when market forces are at play. So um, he published in 1976 and he was like completely ostracised from the medical community. So if you think Twitter's bad, you should read like the comments pages in The Lancet around his article being published. They are ruthless, like like posh and ruthless, but ruthless. Mm -hmm. Um, And he got absolutely slated and he got ostracised from the medical community for a long time. And he was told that he was what he'd found wasn't true. In fact, even now we don't like that it exists. It's uncomfortable for us in general practice, particularly to think that maybe posh areas do get a better deal than poor areas. It just doesn't sit very well with us. We don't like it. So, um, yeah, Tudor Hart published it and then he proved it again. And then since then it's been proved in every medical discipline in this country and mainly around the world, unless you're in extreme communist states, where I'm not sure if the research is that valid. So it's basically true. And so, what it says is that um, you know the, the people who need healthcare the most generally receive the least, and that can be measured, as I said before, in access or quality of service or expertise. All those things can be measured, and unfortunately, it still comes out true. That's so disappointing, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's really disappointing, and it, and it's disappointing because it runs against our ethos in the NHS, isn't it? We all want the NHS to be best where it's needed most, but the scientists in us always think that we're doing the best science and you see these amazing scientists don't you on on the tv now the people who invented the covid vaccines and doing genomic stuff and this personalized cancer care and all this kind of science that actually is way beyond the science I ever learned at uni and they're they're geniuses aren't they and we always think the NHS is best there and it's best in our tertiary centers where we're doing trials and we're pushing the margins of medicine and that is best but for a a huge proportion of our population the NHS is not best where it's needed most. Um, and even if you look at trial data, trials often have a disproportionate number of upper and middle class people in them. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I feel like I'm really depressing no. you both. <laughs> no, no, it's such
0: important messages to get out. Um, I was going to say, you talked a little bit about um, about things like the morbidity, mortality, life expectancy yeah. differences between the different social groups. Do you have any actual numbers to, that we can share to put yeah. on that?
2: So that. The one that's pu- that's published the most is a really lovely graph, which is like tube the tube map of London, and it basically shows that for every tube stop you go down, you lose a le- year of life from the centre out. So if you travel along the London tube, you may you you you'll lose like ten years of mortality as you travel along, and um, either east or west. And um, the same is true in Manchester on our tram line, and you can do and um, Glasgow. Do the same map. Um, and you, it's it's like, it's basically if you pick an area that, of, an, of the country that is deprived, but, you know, all our city centres, really, Glasgow, Liverpool, Blackpool, Manchester, where we are. and But even within somewhere like Kent, that's considered quite wealthy, you will have pockets of deprivation. And Kent's a really interesting place to look at inequalities. Um, and in those areas, there will always be a mortality gap. And that gap is normally somewhere between 10 and 15 years. Shocking, really. Um, and then the morbidity gap is a lot is higher. So what you, if you measure morbidity by people who have three or more chronic diseases, um, then you know, your average age of having three or more chronic diseases is about 75, 72. And in areas of deprivation, it would be about 50. And, and sometimes we see, we talk about frailty of our 40-year-olds quite commonly, um, where we see 40-year-olds having a physiological profile of, our, of what you would expect in some other areas of 75. Mm. And so that is a, quite a big burden
1: to carry yeah they definitely put it into perspective um so you've mentioned hope citadel can you talk us through some of the projects that you're involved in or have been involved in the yeah. so hope citadel started when as i said 15
2: nearly 15 years ago now when i was at medical school and it's basically we're not for profit organization we're proper not profit you know, people get paid a salary and all the money and we just um, provide gp services in greater manchester so we've grown over the years we started off with, with a couple of surgeries and now we're a mixture of contract and caretaking, um, 11 at the moment. And the last couple of years, um, quite a lot of my work has been about improving practices that have got into like real difficulty and special measures and had contracts removed. And we're an amazing team. I have the privilege of leading it, but I lead it with a great senior leadership team who is like, quirky and um, passionate and slightly rational at times. And we are the classic have-a-go heroes. Um, so I think on paper, Hope System sounds fabulous. Day to day, it's like an absolute roller coaster. Some days are brilliant. Like all general practice, quite a lot of days at the moment are just quite hard and quite tricky. Um the kind of reality on the ground is definitely gritty and um but also hilarious and funny. And it's always about the people you work with, isn't it, in general practice. And um I work with some amazing people, like you know, some amazing doctors and nurses and um admin teams and cleaners. Um, so we do we do well. We've just got we just had three practices go through CQC three in six weeks, which did nearly uh, push me over the edge. I have to say, yeah. um, two of them came out with good, and they had gone from like requires improvement and contract removal to good in 18 months, and um, one got outstanding. So, so we're doing really well. And then from there, we started when we started Hope Systel. And the first tender I wrote, I wrote something called um, social work in primary care. And they put a tiny amount of money to it. And I had no idea what it was, but I just knew that there was something about us integrating. And this is a long time ago. So we invented this role that we call focus care, which is about how do you look after um, the most vulnerable in a practice well? And how do you do medicine that is more than medicine in these areas? So, I mean, all GPs will have this where people come to see them. And it's not really about the medicine. I, I mean, a lot of our consultations aren't about the medicine, is it? But um. In areas of poverty, often stuff is about um, housing, it's about um, child protection, it's about domestic violence, it's about a slightly strange criminal world. It's all these kind of things play out in your 10-minute consultation. And as a GP, you can feel very overwhelmed. And so focus Care is a way of us um, holding that care and then working with those families and those households and then working with the system to put a, a proper plan in place. And so focus Care started as that, really, in, in Hope City Hill. It then grew, so we got challenged in by, um, I think it was the PCT still, I don't know. Anyway, one of those managers ran one of those manager things where they go, you can have 20 grand if you turn up and do a Dragon's Den presentation. So I turned up and did a Dragon's Den presentation on focus care, and they said, yes, you can do it in other practice. And the deal was that they would pick the practice. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> So, um, and they told me that they didn't think it would work because I was actually just a loony lefty, um, and that was really my first experience of working with other practices um, with a project. So that focus care worker started in that practice, and we had a we had an interesting year. But at the end of the year, the outcomes were the same. So the outcomes were the same whether it was in Stell or in um, a different practice. And those outcomes were about re- reduced A um, and E attendances, increased compliance with quantity stuff, uptake of IMS and smears. Patient engagement and like meaningful stuff, you know, like coming off alcohol, getting rehoused, getting your kids back off child protection. When we looked at those outcomes, they were the same. So then I suddenly realised this is actually really interesting. This is more about that role and what the governance structure around that role. And then since then, it's been like a really amazing growth journey, where now Focus Care is in quite a lot of areas in Manchester, and it seems to work um, really well. And Primary care teams in hard-pressed areas really, really like it. Um, it's, not, it's not simple and it's not linear, and I spend most of my time talking about funding and weird conversations with weird combinations of commissioners and people and trying to work out how this is sustainable long-term, but um, it seems to be that it works. And um, we're just having some independent evaluation done by the university and the early data we got a couple of weeks ago and it was so exciting <laughs> because there's something about knowing that your your passion project works and you keep hearing these stories of people's of patients' lives who have changed and teams who suddenly feel like they're doing the medicine they were created to be and having that narrative is amazing. And then there's like the hardcore data where you're like, the data seems to show it. So um, hopefully that will be published um, in the next couple of months. Wow. Amazing. And then from there, really, the world of health inequalities is like an amazing adventure. So I'd encourage anyone who wants to get involved just to try it. Um I so then from there, Shared Health is an amazing organization. So I'm really, really lucky that I was given some philanthropic funding by a very, very generous um organization to basically try anything that will work that will reduce health inequalities in Greater Manchester. And so it's literally like playtime and when do you get that when do you get money that's just going you use your experience and your brain and your ability to problem solve and go and do it and the things we've got working on at the moment we're working on uh, we spotted I spotted about five years ago that we had quite a lot of families living in temporary accommodation so there was no official data so the first thing we did was did a freedom of information request for all the councils around Manchester to find out how many children were living in temporary accommodation and that that was not easy, but we've got we've got an estimate. And then, having got an estimate, we were like, "Oh, that's quite a lot." And um, so, we think in Greater Manchester, there's about um, 1,500 families living in temporary accommodation. That's the last time we ran the FOI, and it's pr- likely to have gone up then. And then, if you're living in temporary accommodation, um, you're living in normally a hotel or a B&B um, mm-hmm. or some kind of shelter, and you could be living in one room with your three kids. Um, and there's very little facilities. Often you won't have cooking facilities, you won't have play facilities. You will be likely moved a long way from where your kids go to school or where your GP was. And the, the guidance is that you're meant to only be there like a very short amount of time. But we've got families who have been living in temporary accommodation now for a year. Um, and if you've ever had to go on holiday, I once went on a camping trip and there was um there was a storm and we had to like leave the tent. And so we went to like a travel lodge with my five kids and five bikes for one night and like no one slept at all. Um and I think temporary accommodation is like that. It's like doing that awful bit of holiday where you're all rammed into one travel lodge room, but you do that permanently week in, week out. So it's really difficult. So we've got we've got loads of work around the homeless families. Um at ground level, we've got um We're trying to find ways of supporting homeless families, like genuinely day to day. So we're doing a big um, hub in Oldham where we provide like psychology and counselling and um, lots of interactions, like lots of practical support, like nappies and food and stuff. And the whole idea is to build relationships, so then we can support women, mainly women, into the next decision-making aspects of their lives. And then at policy level, we're pushing which I know you're going to laugh given the politics we've got this week, but um, we're pushing for some parliamentary action on minimum standards of housing and temporary accommodation. And we've written those standards and evidence-based them. And they're basically like, please don't put families and single homeless people in the same accommodation because that's like a safeguarding nightmare. And please make sure everyone has a cot. Please make sure everyone has a bed. Uh, please make sure there's stair gates. Please have access to GP surgeries. Please give children who are in temporary accommodation the same rights to school as looked after kids. Because schools are not obliged to take them on. And so often these kids are out of school for a long period of time. Mm. So we've got this kind of call to action that we're trying to put through. And we've got an all-party parliamentary group that is like brilliant and they're campaigning. So, um, so homeless family is an example of where we're trying to go from like ground into po- real policy change um, in one go. <laughs> so, Ambitious. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, you suddenly realise that, like, who else is going to do it? Yeah. I think we've got the opportunity to do it, so... And again, that's a really small team. I think people think you need like some qualification or a bit of paper that says you can do these things or you might need to know the right people. I'm not, I don't know the right people. I don't hang around Westminster or anything. Like I sit in Oldham in, in, in the practice if I have to go to London, I think, oh, it's really big. You know, I've got that, kind of, that northern thing again when you go down south, oh, it's very busy down here. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. but, but change is really possible and, like, change is much more possible for all of us than we think it is and we're very good at telling ourselves that, like, I'm not qualified enough or I don't have the time or there's somebody better than me or there'll be an organisation that does it better than me, you know, and actually all this change needs to be led by, by somebody and I think all of us can do it. Um, so yeah, so Shed Health does some other projects. We set up a GP training scheme because a passionate belief that you can be taught how to do medicine well in areas like this. So we had a series of doctors coming to us from Hope Sish Dell who were brilliant doctors, but they'd never experienced like the medicine that we have to do. Yeah. And then they'd arrive and then they'd all think they were the world's worst doctor. And then they'd get all like hetty and then they'd basically go off and do medicine somewhere else. And it's not because they're rubbish doctors or rubbish people or it's because they've been taught right mm. So um, my great colleague, Andy Elliott, runs the GP Training Scheme, which is the first one that specialises in deprivation medicine. And the first cohort have gone through and they are absolutely fabulous. They're like brilliant. Um, And so we're trying to learn how you teach these skills so that doctors can thrive in areas like this rather than feeling like they're going to sink. That's fabulous.
1: Yeah, it's so good because um, just that sense of moral injury when you're working in places where it feels like, like you were saying, the kind of medicine side, it's like there's only so much that you can do with your amazing diagnostic skills that you might have. Actually, loads of the problems aren't the skill set that we naturally have. So, yeah, that's amazing that you're getting the actual training programs that will help people work through. That.
2: And then it's working through, it's working through risk. It's, yeah. it's how you talk to people so i know we talk about you know ideas concerns and expectations which is brilliant but you know in some of these areas it's a it's about bartering it's about um mm-hmm. it's about with pro pro it's about trust massively about trust uh some of the medicine slightly difficult different like you do need to know a lot of medicine because if your patients aren't going to go to outpatients then you need to be reasonably confident and handling a lot more <laughs> um but that's learnable that's teachable You need to know that none of the NICE guidance are going to fit your patients because they're written for people with linear disease. And who has linear disease? Definitely not any of ours. And you need to know that there's ambiguity and there's risk and there's unknown. And the story you're being told is probably not the whole story. And so how do you live in that and how do you sit with that? And you also need to kind of get to the point as a human where you can be okay with it not being okay. And I think that's really different. I think that's when we go through a hospital-based training system where you've, you know, done orthopedics and the hip is fixed and you've done A and E and the ECG is sorted and, and all that kind of stuff. And actually being in community where, you know, things are just not quite like that. You know, you might fix a problem and there's still five more, or the solutions we've got in medicine are helpful but only helpful. They're not solvative. And and how do you sit with that as a doctor? So those are all the things that um we try and hold each other as a peer group with and also hold each other um, when we're training, teach those kind of skills and teach that kind of resilience where it's okay, that it's not okay. I feel like that's the sort of training programme that needs to be national.
0: It's not just for deprived areas. I feel like every GP trainee needs to go through that. I feel like I would have been a lot more supported and I've had a much better experience if that had been my training, Yeah, um, I must
2: say. Yeah, and it's like we need to learn to talk better as doctors about this stuff we like linear things we taught in medical school that if you learn enough facts and you know enough drugs then you're going to find the one and we're now learning aren't we that our pharmacology is probably quite limited and particularly in pain and stuff we're we're a bit like coming up against some difficult stuff at the moment and so how do you meet somebody as a human so when when you've got a doctor and a patient in a room you've got a lot of power imbalance you've also got two humans meeting and so how do you do human connection that isn't going to absolutely exhaust you. because um, I know some doctors who are very very good and they're very brilliant at making human connection but by the end of the day they have got
1: nothing to give their kids or anything. Yeah, really resonating lots of this with both of us I think. Yeah.
2: And yeah. and like and what's what is achievable? Like we we talk about making the invisible visible and I'm really passionate about that. So there's there's patients on our list who who aren't very visible because our quaff and Our recall systems set up for certain things. So, like, I think it's appalling that safeguarding is not quaffable at all. It doesn't have any measurement in it of safeguarding. We have no way of tracking our safeguarding, like we do every other thing we do in primary care. Um, there's lots of things in, that in medicine that are really important that aren't that aren't there. Our visible patients are on a quaff list basically, and um, a lot of the important things aren't on quaff list. So we talk about making invisible things visible, but once you've made them visible then you have to learn to sit with that real ambiguity. I do a training session with the GP trainees and also some other some other doctors where I show some anonymized medical records from a practice like 10 years ago. And we talk about the patient and it's like a car crash. You know, it's like domestic violence. It's like substance use, It looks chaotic. There's all these weird and wonderful physical symptoms of headaches and weird leg pains and palpitations and tummy pain. And, you know, that kind of everything is like kicking off. And then we say, what would you like to, what would you do with that patient? And everyone says hundreds of letters. So everyone writes lots of letters, which makes us all feel we've done something. And then you're like, okay, well, what, what where's that patient actually going to turn up to? They're not ever going to turn up to um, gastro, to be honest. <laughs> so where are they going to go? And then I ask people to think, what, what will have happened to that patient in a year? And what's going to happen to five years? And people always overestimate what's going to happen in the short term. So they think like within a month, definitely going to leave the partner definitely gonna flee dv because that's a logical thing to do we'll probably send them to like the alcohol service i'll manage to give up alcohol and then they'll be fine so then you show them six months later where it looks even more of a car crash and they're like oh it's got worse you're a brilliant doctors you made it all worse um and they go oh my goodness oh, my goodness and then i show them the record of like 10 years on where they have got a new life where they have got a different partner where the kids are either back with them or stable where the kids are at second school doing really well we've had we've now got kids who are just going to university for the first time Time. it comes from this kind of background and you mm-hmm. you have to teach people that the change you can make in the short term we overestimate and the change we can make in the long term we underestimate mm-hmm. and once you understand that then your possibility for human relationships is really different yeah. does that make sense yeah and the small things make a big difference I had a wonderful conversation with my own GP this week about something and um She's a brilliant GP and I'm sure she must be really nervous looking after me. You can imagine her on a screen going, oh my goodness. And um, so, and I'm trying to be a really good patient. So it's like a really funny dance we both do. And at the end she was like, Laura, I just have to say that you just need to look after yourself better because you're worth it. And I don't know why she said it, but for me, that was what I actually needed to hear that day. You know, she did all the medical stuff fine. And she said this one comment as she was hanging up the phone and it just hit me. And I was like, as a doctor, we get to do that so often and I don't think we even realise that these little things we say have these big impacts mm. and being on the other end of it this week really reminded me of that and I was just so grateful to her for her compassion and her insight.
0: It's hard, I think the um, it can be overwhelming at times because you have so many different patient contacts and you're trying to problem solve and firefight and it just kind of becomes a blur but you actually if you step back and think about Every single one of those patient contacts is probably quite a big deal for them. They're speaking to a doctor. It's quite an important time for them and it is a privilege to be on the side of that that you can make a difference. But it's hard to see that in the moment when you're in it
2: and yeah. just try to get through the day. It totally isn't like I mean I worked for the shift yesterday in A and E like, and by the end of the day, you know, the nurses come up and they tell you a name, and you're like, did I? Did I see them? I don't know. You know, they've all just blurred <laughs> into one and I've got no idea if I've seen or not seen. And there is that in the day, and there's also that pressure, isn't it? Where if you think, "Oh, being a doctor is a real privilege," then you can feel guilty if you don't find it a privilege that day. Which, let's be honest, most days feel like just get through and eat less biscuits than the day before. And um, and and also, you can yeah. feel that pressure to be perfect or to solve everyone's problems. So, how do we sit in these spaces where we can? It is a privilege, but it's also a, a real pressure. And how do we how do we do good medicine without caving to that pressure or perfectionism? or becoming depressed and despondent or just seeing mountains of work and unmet need mm-hmm. and so that is something that n- none of us have got sorted but I think particularly in hard-pressed areas you have to grapple with and you have to learn to sit there in it if you're going to be in it for the long haul and I would encourage all doctors whatever you practice you know, whether you practice in like the posh bits of Mayfair or whatever you're going to have different pressures but learn how to sit with the like the unknown and the not quite good enough
1: it's fabulous advice and I think when we're sort of thinking about what we wanted to get away from this episode it's so much more than I was kind of expecting because it's hit me in a in a deeper <laughs> <Sorry>. place <laughs> um, no no it's it's amazing it's like you know that's, that's even better absolutely um I'm just thinking practically for people listening if they are interested how could people get involved with learning more or doing more or helping their populations if they're at sort of any stage of training or general practice any clinicians Yes. Yeah.
2: so um so there'll be pockets of deprivation in in most parts of the country i would try and see if you can find them within your practice so things that are good indicators if you're a data geek to start finding these people um people who do not bring their children for ims in areas of deprivation are not reading the lancet <laughs> they are chaotic and they've watched TikTok. Um and so, you know, that is often a population. So we at the end of Quaff, you know, when you end up in the year, if you leave your exceptioning as late as you can, then you end up with this glorious list of people who have not complied with anything. And if you work out um who they are, then in April and May, then we go find them. And finding those people is really interesting because often they've become invisible because of circumstances that have fallen out. When we looked at the map data for Greater Manchester, we looked at the number of people who um, weren't hitting their hba1c diabetes targets okay and when you looked at that population at a gm level and what made you not hit them was generally not that we were not very good at prescribing the right drugs there's a few of them where we just don't go quick enough or hard enough but a lot of them that put them in the in the inequality bubble were like domestic violence immigration issues and trafficking think about people's Um, jobs at the moment, zero hour contracts. So all the social determinants of health put you in a social determinants of health bubble and that bubble would exist in all practices. So exception exception patients from the year before are always interesting. There's always a story. If no one can tell you that actual story, it means no one knows. So if they're blagging, if they tell you some rubbish excuse, unless they're genuinely palliative or in prison, then you don't know the story. So what is the story? So be professionally curious about that look at stuff that's going on you know I would encourage doctors just to try and be a bit more curious about life so you know go and volunteer at the food bank once every eight weeks you don't have to become a weekly volunteer but I tell you if you go once once every eight weeks and you don't say you're a doctor just make up a different job then you start to interact with people in a different way and you start to see story differently um, and you'll that will that will change your your practice and um, other things you can do in practice is you know, be interested in people who've got substance use issues. Be interested in people who've got temporary accommodation. Um, please register people who don't have addresses at your practice. You know, you do not need passports, immigration things, rent agreements to be able to be registered with a GP in this country. You do not. So just be bold and register. Work out what it is in your surgery and how you do that. And then be curious about them. Um, and you'll start to kind of follow the wall, really, and learn.
0: That completely makes sense And there not I wouldn't say easy bits to do but it's accessible bits that people can do in every practice
2: yeah and I think people get um you know people get obsessed with trying to solve the whole things you know we we just we run a toddler group from one of our surgeries once a week and it has 25 kids come and it's not the 200 kids of that age group on our estate at all but it's 25 and it's hilarious and it's fun and you can do that you know over the years in our surgery we've had we've had choirs and we've had growing groups we've had bee club which is some kind of beekeeping thing that didn't go very well but anyway <laughs> um you know we've had a veterans thing we've had a, we have walking clubs where only one person turns up to walk and the poor GP and then walk around in awkward like, conversation but other uh, patients see them walking around this state which is really interesting and then they've started walking so you can do lots of stuff you don't have to not everything has to be evidence-based you know not everything has to be on a plan and not everything has to last forever so some of the stuff we've done has only been for a year six months and um, we've done some awfully awful stuff that's gone completely wrong can't think of any at the moment but we definitely have had things where we've tried it once and gone never again we're not doing that and that's fine I mean that's absolutely fine you don't have to come up with this plan I know there's this whole like PDSA QI thing at the moment where we teach everyone to do these cycles of change and you can also just be like i got this mad idea why don't we try it see if it works that is pdsa without any of the language um and you're yeah. allowed to try stuff yeah
1: be bold yeah, let's give it a
2: go give it a go well, <laughs> it i a did go. i did a diabetes <laughs> session once where i was trying to explain to people that um like sugar in, and doesn't really go well with their like blood so i decided to make meringue and i like whisked egg white because it's a protein isn't it and then put sugar in because it's a sugar and was basically showing that you know if you just carry on having loads of sugar turning around your blood vessels and they turn into meringue and i had someone who literally thought that that was what actually happened <laughs> <laughs> it was just very difficult to unpick the fact that no i wasn't going to tell me they were actually going to become a, a meringue monster that like, wasn't like <laughs> you think oh well i tried really hard and it didn't quite land never mind
1: it's all all part of the learning process
2: yeah um so Laura thank you so
0: much for um for talking to us today it's been absolutely fabulous and we always ask at the end um what you would want our listeners to take away from the chat today so if you've got some points that you want people to
2: remember um yeah so remember that there's always hope remember that you can do more than you think you can and you can make a bigger change and um just remember that Every person on our list, even if they have 17 red boxes, none of which are filled in because they never turn up, is still of value and is important. Um, and so keep working to try and make every patient genuinely count. And that's that's how we make healthcare
1: better. But you are also allowed to be really angry at the red boxes. They never go away oh thank you so so much laura this has been incredible so now it's just us lisa we're just um reflecting on how the chat was with laura um which was utterly amazing and she's so incredibly inspiring um what what your learning points I think you're right. Yeah. She's, she's such an inspiring
0: person. And I know she said it in the, um, in the episode that that was her journey and that we'll have done things that she hasn't done. But, um, I still think that what she's managed to achieve, um, is absolutely amazing. And she's making such a difference, I think, to people's lives. And I was really struck, um, by the, the conversation about working in these areas. Um, and I don't know if I've shared much on the podcast, but when I did my, um, my GP training, I was in quite an affluent area. Um there was there was that had its own problems. Um but um everyone cared about their health and um were almost too demanding. And then when I did my first um, jobs as a GP, it was in a very, very deprived area um, and there were a whole host of different issues and people didn't access care and um, it was very hard to not become involved in people's lives. Um, and there wasn't always the support available not within the practice itself but from a higher level it just wasn't available to be able to support these people who really needed the health care but who just weren't able to get it in the way that they wanted it and um i just think that what she's yeah. doing at Hope citadel and all of the work with focus care um is really targeting that kind of problem and the issue that i really felt was a big issue so yeah um it was just amazing to talk to her and hear what, about what she's doing
1: yeah i think it's this there's so much unsaid about the types of job that you do and you can kind of make it look like what you want it to look like but it's really hard when you kind of go through the training and you want to help people everyone gets into it because they want to help people the get out the other side and a lot of the time in general practice it's about survival and yeah, yeah when you're working in places where the the deprivation level higher it's incredibly incredibly different and yeah if you've got the gp training schemes like that she has where it's like supporting supporting you to live in the that completely different type of uncertainty in a way and and how to be okay when it's not okay and the outcomes might not be amazing and they might not be instantaneous and they they can be very delayed it just sounds so much more inspiring and that you can there are ways of doing it Um, and yeah it's just kind of getting the help to To be able to thrive in those areas, definitely. And I have um, before the talk, I sort of checked out a few of Laura's uh, YouTube channels, things and uh, the Shared Health Foundation, and she talks so amazingly about all these different things. Yeah, I definitely want to go through <laughs> a training program. <laughs> I know it sounds
0: so good. Like I said, I wish I kind of wish that it was available to everybody because I think that you're going to come across it no matter where you're working, Um, and it's a completely different population of people, and they have such high need, and it's very difficult. Like you said, it's living in that different area of risk, um, and we're not trained for that properly. I don't think, and it can be very difficult, and it can mean that you then you protect yourself and you go into a bubble, and it is about survival, Mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily about helping the patients in the best way that they actually need yeah. it and uh, yeah I just think that it would be a bit revolutionary if everybody was um, trained in a different manner that helped uh, these people I think that the, it would definitely help to address that health gap um, for sure yeah yeah. yeah I think the oh the other um, bit that uh, just uh, I thought was interesting was mm-hmm. um, actually two bits I've written down one was um, about the you, you alluded to it but the fact that we um, overestimate the um, short term and we underestimate the long term yeah. um, that she talked about and I was like oh yeah we definitely do do that <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice to reflect that actually in the longer term people might end up in um, a better place and yeah. um, it just you need to stick with it and you need to stick with them and get the trust and build it and work with them and it might not be instantaneous but actually they might end up in a better place than you think that they're going to end up, um, and the second bit was um just the stuff that that you can do on the ground. So perhaps volunteering at a Food Bank um to kind of get to see your population without the the medical mask on. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of stepping into it as an outsider um, I think would be fascinating and um, and looking for your exceptioned um, people as trying to find that population to target Yeah. so yeah we'll hopefully um, have a little bit more chat about um, health inequalities with Dr John Patterson who also works at um, Hope Citadel so um, we'll give you a little bit more content around this um, hopefully soon as well.
1: Yeah and thank you very much to everyone who's been filling out surveys for us and giving us feedback and subscribing or leaving reviews on iTunes. The last last few surveys that we got back there's some really really good suggestions on there so we've already chased up quite a few things and we'll, we'll continue to do that so thank you very much till next time on primary technologies
0: Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgement before applying or relying on information solely from this
2: podcast.